I guess a lot of people are stressed out right now with coronavirus. I'm gonna share how I grew up the poorest kid in arguably one of Australia's richest neighborhoods. And when I say poor, I was the weirdo of the neighborhood. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saggers. I'm here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, we're actually unpacking my story. Yes, my story. My very own rich dad, poor dad upbringing, which will bring a tear to your eye and a smile to your face. We're going to unpack what took me from novice property investor, the moments in my life to today, sitting with you as a property expert. And i tell you what, it's so important to understand and study real estate. Very much this podcast is going to be about learning real estate and what it means to you as a human in 2020, the decade of disruption. And i tell you what, being a property investor right now is difficult. Lots of trends, influences and disruption is reframing real estate for everybody. My goal ultimately with this podcast is to help you understand how to make money 2020 and beyond and live off passive income so you can replace the income you do and get from your job. I tell you what, the world is full of problems and if we don't acknowledge what they are, we can't move forward. Before I explain my story, I really want to summarise that this podcast is about understanding trends in the urban world. It's about identifying nudges and influences which are reframing real estate altogether. How you can apply some of the lessons that I'm going to teach in this podcast to reset your world, to actually make money quickly out of real estate and to live off passive income. The world is changing. We're living in uncharted times. We're living and investing through a pandemic never been done before. Just earlier in the year, devastating bushfires ripped through Australia, reframing the landscape when it comes to the environment and what it actually means to real estate. As the podcasts roll out, I'm going to give you so much content. Now, I tell you what, just so you know, a little bit about me, I'm going to share my story today. I'm going to share how I grew up the poorest kid in arguably one of Australia's richest neighbourhoods. And when I say poor, I was the weirdo of the neighbourhood, the poor kid which no one really wanted to go near. My dad drove a Datsun Sunny. Can you imagine? Does anyone remember the Datsun? Datsun was so bad they actually got rid of the car and renamed it a Nissan here in Australia because it just was such a bad brand. The nearest car to ours was a Mercedes. A Mercedes was the next car up from the Datsun Sunny. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to talk you through my story so I can give you some lessons and insights on really what shaped me today to being your podcast host. I think it's ultimately very important to go through some of the information about why the Urban Property Investor podcast is going to be the podcast you want to tune into weekly. 
I want you to know, though, I do swear and carry on. I do it in jest. Uh, it's me. I'm not going to change me. But uh, if you hear the odd uh, bomb that comes out of my mouth and that offends you, I apologise in advance. But I'm sure if you got to know me face-to-face, you would love me and we would have a good kiss and a cuddle or a beer together and have a great meal and get to know each other well. Now, I'll tell you what, where it all began for me, as a young fella, my family decided to do something before I was born. They decided to do a principle known in real estate as buying the worst house in the best neighbourhood. And I can attest, from about five years old, living in this house was absolutely a dump. It was without question the worst house in what was a very, very expensive neighbourhood. I grew up in the suburb called Hunters Hill. Hunters Hill, for those people who aren't from Sydney or perhaps are new to the country, if anyone can remember the TV show Beverly Hills 90210, Hunters Hill was Beverly Hills. It still is Beverly Hills. It's full of millionaires and billionaires. And I tell you what, Growing up in a neighbourhood where everybody is wealthy and you're not teaches you some life lessons very, very quickly. I mean, I remember going to the ferry to go to school and being dropped off in the Datsun Sunny and being so awkward and ashamed that I would encourage my mum to drive literally 500 metres past the drop-off point as to just not be the guy that gets out of the Datsun Sunny. So why was I the guy in the Datsun Sunny? Well, I was born to two freaking awesome parents. My father, Colin, is what I would term my poor dad. Poor in wealth, but very rich as a human being. See, I grew up a poor boy in a rich neighbourhood. I had a poor dad, but I also had a rich dad. And my poor dad, my real dad, went every day to Paddy's Markets. Now, if you don't know Paddy's Markets, Paddy's Markets is an icon in Sydney. It's kind of our central city marketplace and people sell fruit and veg there to uh, sneakers that they literally hocked from China. Um, there's stolen goods there, there's uh, awesome Australian paraphernalia, you name it, it's a market. And my dad would literally go to this market every day and work his ass off. I actually didn't get to spend a lot of time as a child with my dad. My dad was this image of someone who left early in the morning and came home late at night. But my dad did something so powerful for me. He took a bullet. And the bullet he took is he took out a mortgage on a house he couldn't afford to live in a neighbourhood he didn't belong in to allow his kids to grow up wealthy, to grow up with rich people around them. And he did this knowing full well that he would be ridiculed as a man, the market guy. Every day he would drive his van, his Datsun, through this very wealthy suburb full of produce, full of goods, and people would mock us. But my dad knew the foundation to wealth 
is you need to surround yourself with the A-team. The A-team in Australian real estate at the time was Hunters Hill. Billionaires, millionaires, people who'd made their wealth through real estate. And I'm not talking bought a property and paid it off. I am talking billionaires. BRW top 200 people. I grew up with them. And really, my first billionaire friend, I didn't really know he was a billionaire, neither did he, was my awesome mate, we're still best buds, a guy called Sean Teague. Sean today is a billionaire in his own right. I'm a millionaire from property. He's a billionaire from property. And the beautiful thing is Sean's father helped us both grow up. Sean's father really was my rich dad. He was rich dad to a lot of kids in the neighbourhood. He really showed us that real estate was available to everybody. You didn't have to be wealthy from real estate, you didn't, to buy real estate. He taught me that I could do it too. He would show me their vast real estate holdings. I remember some weekends driving around in the back of his Jaguar, learning the tricks of the trade of real estate literally as a teenager. We would go to the Gwynville Holdings, which are sizable. I mean, I'm talking the guys owned half of Pitt Street Mall in the city, half of Martin Place in Sydney, if you've been to Sydney. If you've ever walked Manly Corso, the retail there is owned by these people. In fact, they were so wealthy, they owned their own supermarket chain. They owned Franklin's. Franklin's isn't around today. It's probably reformed more, more known as IGA today. But Franklin's at the time was like Coles and Woolworths is today. It's a freaking big machine. In fact, that family started a brand called No Frills. Now, if you can remember No Frills, it was like the poor people's person, uh, poor people's person of butter, of milk, of eggs, and I always remember, it was so strange, because I would open my fridge and we would have no frills, butter, eggs, milk, and I always thought, this is such a dichotomy. I'm eating no frills, butter and eggs, but I know the guy who sells no frills, butter and eggs. He's coaching me to be wealthy, and yeah, I'm in a poor world. So for me, I grew up in this awesome awesome place where I was almost socially engineered to become a property person, a wealthy person from real estate. And today, I guess I speak as a lecturer on real estate. A big part of my job is simply sharing information for others to benefit themselves from real estate. It's kind of the gift that was given to me by my rich dad. And I'm really just passing it on to other people written books on real estate. I'm up to my fifth book on real estate, which is called The Part-Time Money Magnet. I also lecture on urban behavioral trends or the urban behavioral economy, which is really a driving force of how I invest in real estate today. Recently, actually guest lectured at Sydney University on urban behavioral economics. So I was socially engineered to be successful from real estate. I learned it at a very young age. Now, I remember my rich dad telling me that 
As soon as you work out how to make real estate your servant, make it work for you, your life changes. Don't go to work and work for the man. Buy investments that work for you. I've really spent much of my life understanding that principle, that if I can create investments that work for me, that pay me, I ultimately can live a better life. I guess a lot of people are stressed out right now with coronavirus. A lot of people are in fear right now. Fear is palpable. People are worried about their job. Most of Australia, most of New Zealand is broke. They have woken up one week, two weeks, three weeks away from not being able to pay the rent, not being able to pay the mortgage. My early social engineering taught me as soon as you can possibly invest, you will replace your income. Today, I still invest. I love property. I live and breathe it. Every day, I'm in the urban world learning real estate trends. But my poor dad, my real dad, Cole, good old Cole, hope you're listening, Cole, still going, still ticking along, uh, is a top bloke. And he is absolutely a bit of a sage. But he taught me one of my earliest comprehensions around money. And the first thing I ever learned about money was money is made at the marketplace. The marketplace. It's not made from putting it in your pocket. It's made from going to market. Remember, my dad is a market man. Every day he woke up and went to a market to make money. So understanding that money comes from a market, it really... I guess, influenced me as to becoming the person I am today. I remember he would come home from the market and literally empty one and two dollar bills on the floor and my job was to count them. Now, a lot of people have limiting beliefs about money and it does stem back to perhaps how their parents raised them around money. See, most of us are never given a financial education. Our parents don't financially educate us. The school system fails us from a financial point of view. I mean, when was the last time you did a course at school which was how to buy real estate and become wealthy from it? No, it doesn't do that. School socially engineers us to become taxpayers. Taxpayers. Work for the man. And in fact, a lot of people don't get to do the gift they were born to do in the arts and uh, other sciences because socially there's not enough jobs in that space. So most of us are socially engineered into a place we hate. We don't like the job we do. We don't have the money we want. We're not living the life we expect. Money is made at the market. The biggest principle and lesson I ever learned as a kid. If you ever think about your beliefs around money, it's a really good place to go back and write them down. Here's a keynote for you. Write down your beliefs with money. Check that shit out. You want to work it out. Why are some people gifted with the belief of money, that money can do anything, and other people fear it? You need to crack the code of money wealth to move forward. What is your belief around money? And I'll tell you what, as a young man, my early behaviours have really shaped my later life. You know, understanding all sorts of dynamics around wealth was 
granted to me or gifted to me in a serendipitous way as a, as a youngster. I mean, the first time I ever listened to a wealth creation tape was virtue of being booted out of the rugby team for swearing at a referee. And I still believe to this day the referee was, was gambling on the game or something because I tell you what, mate, that call was rough. So, I did, mate, I didn't hold back on him, let me just say. I've still got actually the, uh, the report from the principal in my man cave. It's uh, something my father gave to me as I left school. He said, mate, you can never lose this report. It is so bloody funny. Anyway, what happened was I got kicked out of sport and my downfall in high school was certainly being unable to do something that I loved at the time and I was really good at, which was playing rugby. And on a Tuesday, when everyone else got got to go to the sport, I was actually told not to. So I don't know today, actually, if that type of teaching would be allowed. I think um, you could actually protest that. But back then, I just had to cruise off on my own accord and do whatever I wanted to do on a Tuesday. It's got a weird experience. For me, I did all sorts of things. I got stoned in a bush. I got... Uh, I think I had a shag once on a Tuesday underneath the bridge with a lovely bird called Heidi. I did all sorts of things. And for me, the, the biggest thing I did was read books and uh, learn about wealth. And I did that through some tapes that good old Tony Robbins uh, put out. It was my first foray into wealth. And really what it taught me was... You are your own future. You have to create your own future. You have to believe in yourself. And psychology is so important. Those early tapes taught me that the psychology of investing is actually the most important part of investing, that I needed a mentally tough mind to actually become a great property investor and, of course, have a great career in real estate, which today I'm celebrating probably my 27th year in the industry. And there's that idea of a tipping point. You do something long enough, you get very, very good at it. Today, I've been doing real estate for so long. I'm actually involved in multiple real estate companies. I help over 100 talented people work in the real estate sector. And I'll tell you what, when I first tried to get into real estate, the world was not wanting me to do it. In fact, I've still got the letter, again in my man cave, from Crow's Nest TAFE, where I enrolled to do a diploma in real estate. It said, Sam Saggers, we thank you for enrolling at Crow's Nest TAFE. You are too dumb and stupid to do this course. Please bugger off. I've still got it. Well, here's looking at you, Crow's Nest TAFE. 25 years later, 27 years later, I now have 100 talented people working in real estate and today I lecture on real estate, not at TAFE, but at university, big TAFE. So, but we all learn from these type of lessons and for me, the lesson, of course, was don't take anything for granted. Like, the reality is you've got to fight for what you want. And for me, I 
guess I've always been fighting. I've got a really big backbone when it comes to stomaching pain and moving ahead in life. I started my first business early on uh, in my 20s. The internet had just come out and I started a business called Sweden to Sydney. Now, as a young man, I wanted two things, money and girls. And Tinder and Bumble did not exist. In fact, to meet ladies, you had to go to the pub, which were big, horrible paces back then, and get sloshed on bourbon and cokes and try to speak to Sheila's over a pool table. It was a very, very hard dynamic to do. And I think the girls can vouch for it if you're in your 40s like me, just how bloody hard it was to meet someone. So I had a fascination with Sweden ever since I left school. And a friend of mine who was an IT guy and I got together and we started our first business model. It was called Sweden to Sydney. It was a homestay program for Swedish women to come to Sydney and pay us income, passive income, but also for us an opportunity to meet beautiful girls from Europe. Lo and behold, Sweden to Sydney took off and my friends who I'd sort of asked to be the home sponsors for all had bookings. And this was my first foray into the idea that if you can create business models, whether it's property models or business models, you can create income out of it. I had bookings and it blew my mind. All of a sudden, these Swedish women would arrive on planes and obviously I was the chaperone and I would pick them up, drop them at my friend's house who were all living with their mums at the time and their mums would be absolutely mortified that all of a sudden they had sold spare rooms, spare inventory in their houses. So I had a bit of a problem. All of these Swedish ladies would end up living with me, my mum and my dad. I literally had five Swedish girls living at my mum and dad's house at any one time paying me rent to get into Australia to learn the Australian language and, of course, go on to Australian universities. In the end, I couldn't end up taking any more people's money. I became very good friends with all of the people who travelled to, to Sydney and stayed in my uh, very, very quick business. But what it did teach me, other than the ability to talk to ladies, was the ability to make money out of passive income. And it was really my first foray into business, a failed business, albeit. Real estate was something I always loved. And my first real estate job I got at the tender age of 18 or 19. I got it side by side to eventually getting into that diploma of real estate course I wanted to do after being rejected. And the real estate agency I worked at was absolutely awesome. In fact, the year was around 1993 or 1994 and unemployment in Australia was huge. Youth unemployment was close to 35%. Standard unemployment was around 11 or 12%. We were in recession. It was the end of 
the 90s recession and I was, well, trying to work in a world which didn't need a young guy working in it. Very much like where we are today. And I do say this to any young listener who perhaps is struggling to find work in a very covert recession environment. It'll make you tougher. This is a gift that just keeps on giving. The fact that you can learn resilience as I did in a very tough marketplace. I couldn't find a job. I had to go and advertise myself in newspapers for someone to see I was keen for work. I put myself ahead of the pack and eventually got a job and I worked at a family real estate office for many, many years. So around that time, I bought my first property. That is a story for another day and I will share my first property experiences with you in a later episode. But for me, I got to learn real estate, the business of real estate, and I got to learn it from some very interesting people in the real estate space. But something happened along my journey of my first years in real estate, which ultimately sent me on a different course. It was actually a murder. A murder in a house which in real estate is quite infamous. It's called the Gonzalez murders. In fact, at the time the Gonzalez murders happened, I was a member of the real estate team of which the property was sold at. I was not the real estate agent selling the property. I had nothing to do with the sale. But what essentially happened was a family got butchered in their house by one of the family members, the son, killed four people in cold blood, murdered them. And the house eventually went on the market. At the time, my very good friend, very good, and I mean an absolute awesome human being. We actually dated for a while. She was a top chick. She sold the house. And a very, very young person at the time. And, of course, what happened was the person she ended up selling the house to had some religious beliefs about a murder occurring in a house. And at the time, it was a little bit of a grey kind of dynamic. Disclosure of a murder was not necessarily something that real estate agents were taught. So it wasn't a cover-up. It was just, if you don't ask, I don't tell. Anyway, it went on to be one of the biggest stories of the year back then. And the family whose real estate agency it was got torn to shreds. They were clickbait amusement for TV. They became entertainment, not news. How do we ruin these people's lives? And ultimately, the situation got sorted out. Um, the, the deal, the complexities of real estate all got sorted out. But that family had to leave the real estate industry. And for me, it was a, a bit of a hurtful time, in fact, because I saw just what can happen to someone if their reputation is pulled apart. You can have all the money in your world, you can have all the fame you want in the world, but reputation is everything. And it's something 
that I think I've lived by for the last 27 years of real estate is reputation first, be the good guy, try and help people understand things because reputation ultimately matters. But it's fair to say that experience with the Gonzalez murders, but also other experiences inside of real estate absolutely made me fall out of love with real estate for a certain period of my life. Probably one of the biggest concepts around real estate which I disliked is real estate agents don't own real estate. I worked in several offices in my early years of real estate and many of the people inside the businesses were not real estate investors and that never made sense to me. I mean, I knew that you make money passively, not from your job, you make it from investing. I could never understand why I was hanging around people who make money out of selling real estate, but not out of buying real estate. For me, along with the Gonzalez murders, that was it. I was off to try new things in my life. I went traveling. And there were a few years I traveled the world to become a little bit more worldly around how life works outside of Australia. Actually did a couple of forays as a young youngster. I remember the first time I went overseas, my dad gave me a box of Cuban cigars and he said to me, Sam, you're going to have moments on this trip where you need to stop and just take in the scenery, the surrounds, just be in the moment. You know, you live in the future a lot, mate. Like, stop and breathe. Like, you are going to see things that blow your mind. And he gave me six Cuban cigars and said, don't come home until you've had six Cuban cigar moments. And, of course, I went on to have my six Cuban cigar moments. The first of them was drinking a $2 bottle of wine on a Nice beach. Probably my fourth or fifth was being walking across uh, the famous bridge to the old city of the Czech Republic of Prague from the new city to the old city late at night in fog listening to a violin and being the only person on the bridge. The final cigar happened after being banged up abroad and... Here's a story I can get into in a lot more detail. But let's just say, safe to say, myself and a few other Aussies, we got on the booze a bit, young as we were, at Oktoberfest in Germany, and we got in a bit of a brawl. Now, Bavaria is a very strict place as in Germany. Bavarian law is ultimately one of the most well, harshest laws in Germany. And in Bavaria, they have a law around hooliganism. And the reason they have a law around hooliganism is English soccer teams used to go to Germany and hooligans from English soccer teams used to basically destroy German public realm and, of course, have big fights. So here's a couple of Aussie boys. We're in a German pub. And we get into a bit of a slanging match with our German friends. Ultimately, we had a bit of a fight, a bit of a melee broke out. And uh, because we were, well, not European citizens, we got arrested. 
and we got put into a prison. I actually went into a prison called Stadelheim. If anyone knows modern history, if anyone's read Mein Camp by Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler actually wrote the book uh, Mein Kampf in Stadelheim. So it's a very, very old prison. It's a very cold prison. And I spent a couple of weeks there waiting to be let out of uh, prison, out of remand, to go to court. And I went to court and eventually they dismissed the case and just said, look, we think it's probably best you guys all leave Germany. Upon leaving Stadelheim Prison, I popped my cigar and had my cigar moment, which I think my dad wanted me to have. But I had other interesting moments. Probably that was my friends all decided to leave travelling and go back to Australia. But I decided it wasn't over for me. And after weeks in a prison, I decided to move on. I think that has really been the backbone of my life, to not give up, to make sure that I'm moving forward, not moving backwards, even when things really break down, that there is still hope and there are still ways to get ahead in life. And for me, being banged up abroad, even though it sounds, and I'm probably mortifying listeners, this guy's been banged up in a German prison. Well, I'll tell you what, it taught me and some awesome life lessons. And absolutely, I think more people should be banged up a little bit because I tell you what, it brings you out a much better human being. For me, I eventually came back to Australia and I eventually dated that Swedish girl that I always dreamed to date. And it was around then I decided I wanted to try and be a socialist. I actually decided capitalism was something which I had been socially engineered at such a young age to understand that I needed to explore something different. I mean, I grew up in the rich dad, poor dad world. I grew up with a rich dad and a poor dad. I was gifted the opportunity of understanding money was made at the market. I was granted the ultimate gift of being mentored by a billionaire around the idea of passive income, the idea of real estate wealth. I was determined to understand the polar opposite of it. At the time, going to Cuba or Russia to study communism was probably a step a little bit too far. I didn't want to trample the the road trodden to North Korea. And for me, the Swedes had always been an intriguing dynamic. And I was given a visa to go and live and work in Sweden. Sweden, of course, still is a socialist country. It's a place where you pay high taxes. People ultimately live very similar to each other. The idea of a rich class and a poor class is not the dynamic in Sweden. Everyone drives a Volvo. Everyone goes to Ikea. Everyone has bicycles. Everyone catches the bus. There is an ultimate harmony to the idea of socialism. And 
for me, I wanted to experience the idea of being in a collective, in a different organised society to the society we live in today. So I went to Sweden and within weeks of moving to Sweden, I literally uh, broke up with the woman I was with and all of a sudden I was faced with a bit of a dilemma. Do I go back to Australia or do I continue on? So I decided to continue on. And in Sweden, when you're a new immigrant, you are put into a new area where refugees live. And for me, I lived in a part of Gothenburg, a place called Hissingsbaka, and I lived with refugees. And this was the first time I'd ever got to meet people from a completely different world to me. Remember, I grew up in Beverly Hills 90210. I grew up with banker wankers and moguls and yuppies and rich kids. I grew up with little Lord Fauntleroy. So for me, it was an ultimate experience. I literally was living as a refugee. My next door neighbour had fled Syria my other next-door neighbours were refugees from Iraq, from Yugoslavia back then, the former Yugoslavia, people running from Kosovo, terrible wars in all parts of the world. And all of a sudden, I started to realise that my life was absolutely transforming, that people absolutely matter. And really living in this environment, this refugee man-made pocket of Gothenburg in Sweden was an absolute eye-opener. See, when I was banged up abroad, people often ask me, what did you think about in prison? And the truth for me was I didn't think about people. I didn't miss my family. I didn't miss my friends. I didn't miss any human being. What I did miss was places, places. I missed architecture, I missed exploring, I missed the urban world. When I got to Sweden and I started living as a refugee and noticing that people who are refugees live in pretty shit conditions, in pretty shit parts of cities, in uninteresting buildings, in places that don't matter, I soon realised my calling in life was to teach urbanity. The idea that if you can take a person and put them in a place and that place creates a betterment, that human being will ultimately become a wealthier, more educated and better person. It happened for me. It happened by virtue of having a slum house in a wealthy neighbourhood. And for me, understanding that refugees were living in a dynamic which was just terrible, I soon realised that I could make a difference here. I could rechange the world and I'm going to do it through real estate. I'm going to find the most iconic 
pieces of real estate which transform people's lives. For me, that was the end of my world adventures and I soon came home. The lessons, of course, of this episode are fairly simple. Money creates behaviours. Behaviours matter. Your early behaviours around money matter. Life, of course, is ultimately full of curveballs. But it's your future, you've got to create it, and you can't let setbacks hold you back. I reckon I get about five setbacks a day. But the backbone of everything I've experienced just helps me propel forward to being ultimately an awesome property investor today, living off passive income, doing my best to change the world. And I do that through my final lesson, which I learned as a human being growing up, is people matter, but also places matter. And places can change how people live, how people play, and how people grow. And ultimately, that's what real estate's all about. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed my first ever episode of the Urban Property Investor Podcast. I do hope you'll tune in again. I want to get my weekly podcasts out and I've got some kick-ass podcasts on the way. So, hey, that's it for now. I'm signing off. Sam Saggers here. Tune in again and I'll catch you soon so we can talk property and how to absolutely crack the code of real estate wealth. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.